You're listening to the Forever on the Fly podcast. What up, AV nerds? Welcome to season two, episode two of the Forever on the Fly podcast. Your bi-weekly dose of aviation, inspiration, education, and entertainment. I'm Jose. And I'm Diane. And we're here to get you guys hooked, hooked on, on aviation. aviation. Yeah, so SR-22. Hell yeah, girl, tell me about it. Serious aircraft. What a beautiful, beautiful plane. Yeah, it's like a sports car. I basically felt like I was in a flying car. That's kind of what it was like. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, it was nice. It smelled like brand new leather in there. It was just like really pretty interior. G1000 that's like meant for Cirrus, the Perspective Plus. Mm-hmm. thing is so user-friendly. It was so nice to have a keypad to like dial in my flight plan. A keypad? Keypad, dude. I didn't even have to twist anything, hardly. Wow. Yeah, I was I felt like... like a peasant next to you. <laughs> <laughs> I felt real special. Just like, oh my God, I can just type this in. You have one of those what? pine trees hanging from like your rear, rear mirror. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, oh yeah. Uh, like the car wash stuff? Yeah, it's uh, the scent new plane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, it's my friend's plane. Uh, gorgeous. Went down to French Valley, got with a C-SIP. It's a serious flight instructor. You know, some people don't think that Cirrus pilots are real pilots because we have a parachute <laughs> in, case, <laughs> in case shit goes down. Well, I wish I had a parachute in my airplanes. I'm not hating on it. No. You know, people who are like hating on Cirrus pilots just because we have a parachute, they're just jealous. Yeah, they're just peanut butter jelly. They're peanut butter jealous that I got a parachute and they don't. <laughs> <laughs> they hate us because they ain't us. Right? I think helicopters should be equipped with a parachute. So stuff goes down, you can like blast off the blades and a parachute comes up through the top and it'll just, you know. I'd hate to be the test pilot for that. <laughs> <laughs> but they can just, I would just like, I don't know, I'd put it on, I'd have a helicopter with autopilot and then I'd have a parachute as the pilot and I would like put it in hover mode and then I would just dive out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> skydive out of it and be like, y'all can try that shit on your own up there, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, I think that's straight. what's up. Just tying up the frictions, let it go up. Yeah. Oh man, it was uh, very nostalgic being back at French Valley though, you know, yeah. that's where Jose and I used to solo all of our students when we were <laughs> flight instructors out of Long Beach terrifying place on the weekend it is yeah all the weekend warriors come out to play and the students get let out of their cages and they're off to the races i know i i had a student i can't tell you how many times on the cross-country flight training where right before i was getting ready to sign them off instead of turning west towards like la he would continue east or southeast towards San Diego. And I'm like, why are we going this way? Oh, no. I'm like, we always had to go back to French Valley and start all over. And I'm like, please just turn right. Yeah. So we used to follow our students with another student to route train them on where they're going to go. And also just to make sure that the student pilot in front is going to make it there okay. Uh, English was a second language for our students. So just... Making sure uh, if they messed up on any radio calls or got confused, we could hop on there and then we just have to redo the training and if we had to do that. But yeah, yeah. even being like a serious, I was trying not to run people over because we're so much faster than everybody else. And uh, yeah, on the down ones, we'd be like full flaps basically just with a little my, Cessna student pilot in front of us. I think my 150 probably could take you guys. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, so I got everybody extends their downwinds super far, does like crazy patterns. And I'll tell you what, it was the nuttiest thing I've ever seen in my life. We were on the downwind and there were three other planes also in the, there was one on final and then there was two other ones on downwind also. 
but one of them turned so close to the runway, I thought he was going to hit the guy on final. He was like right over the runway, like flew right over the dude, basically was in an upwind for the opposite runway. And uh, we're like, what is that dude doing? And then this other pilot who was in the downwind in front of us, he was kind of like off to the, you know, he was like right in front of us. We had to kind of offset to the right. And um, yeah, that dude did like a, just a straight up 180 turn from base to final, just like super sharp. And then the guy in front of us, you know, he followed suit and we just extended our downwind super far. You know, we're like five mile final. And uh, by the time we got to the runway, this gyrocopter decided to pop up out of nowhere and get on the runway, but we didn't see him. We didn't hear him. So he gets on the runway and you know, we're about to land. And then all of a sudden we see blades starting to rotate. We're like, dude, this guy's on the runway. He hasn't even started his engine yet. Oh my God. (laughs) So we're like going around. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. We went around like three times um, because people were just on the runway, not getting off or, you know, this, this joker, you know, on the runway (laughs) hasn't even started his engine yet. We couldn't see him. He blended in. And uh, yeah, anyways, it was a total shit show down there, but yeah, I know. I do wish they had a tower down there sometimes. It would have been a smart idea or at least somebody to, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. You just got to be careful. So if you ever fly down to French Valley, everybody, on a weekend, just be careful. Weekday, like all the students and most, like all the instructors and people that are there all week, you know, like solid. Yeah. yeah, But like those weekend warriors. Yeah, they pop up and they just screw everything up. Head on a swivel. (laughs) Head on a swivel. Yep, exactly. That's that's the term we use to make sure you're looking for aircraft, left, right, up, down, all around. 10 degree increments. We rise all around. (laughs) You know? Anyways. All right, guys. Let's get get going here on the episode. All right. Our next guest, he's had a very interesting helicopter career. You guys ever seen Whale Wars? Yeah, he was that dude flying the MD-500 off the back of the Sea Shepherd's vessel, assisting in whale conservation efforts from the North Atlantic, Galapagos, Gulf of California, all the way down to Antarctica. What? Dude, crazy. This bad hombre has worked his way up from Robbie's to flying utility and firefighting in Huey's, 212s, and now is flying the infamous K-Max. He's here to chat about his experience with the Sea Shepherds, what it's like to fly the K-Max, utility pilot life, and the role helicopters play in conservation. And at the end of the episode, we're going to do a short ground lesson. I got a question through Instagram from Susan. So Susan, this is for you. What do you do when you find something on your pre-flight check? Are all the things that you find no-fly issues? Wonderful question, Susan. And we are going to answer that again at the end of the episode. All right. We're going to bring out our next guest. Chad Halstead. So when we were in Antarctica, we were primarily trying to search for illegal fishing or illegal whaling vessels. Hi, I'm Chad Halstead, and I'm forever on the fly. There it is. There's my there, sexy voice. There you are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my name's Jose, by the way, amigo. Hey, I'm Chad. Nice, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too, dude. Chad is joining us all the way from... Uh, Utah? Yeah, I'm in Moab, Utah. Oh, cool. You're still in Moab. Nice. I was just there yeah. uh, not too long ago when I, I messaged you a couple of weeks ago. It's beautiful there. 
It, it really is. Yeah. I've been here like uh, one other time and it was very short and sweet. And now I get uh, get to fly around and kind of explore a bit more. And I'm really loving it. Do you fly a lot today? Uh, I did not. Oh, I flew a uh, 0.3. Ooh. So right now you're flying the K-Max? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We're here on fire. Um, so flying the K-Max. Oh man, yep. that's badass. We have a mutual friend. His name's Fulvio. If you're out there, Fulvio. Uh, he he okay. he definitely man. That's his dream helicopter, amigo. That's all he ever wants to fly really? all the time. So he, if he, he ever he's if he K-Max. hears yeah K Max yep. Anytime I cool. watch videos of those things starting up, it's like I don't know. I know the blades aren't gonna hit, but there's like. <laughs> Just seeing it up yeah. close, slowly spinning up. The blades always look like they're going to make contact. It's nerve wracking. <laughs> How do you get checked out in K-Max? Like, because it's only a single uh, seat, right? People, yeah, single seat. So most people go to command school, which is in Connecticut. That's where the factory is. And that's where they're built. And they start you out in the Husky, which is a uh, like a 1950s old Airplane, I think, right? air force trainer yeah. that's a two-seater and it's it's you know it's got the same intermeshing rotor system so you learn the behavior of the intermeshing rotor kind of the way that it behaves mm-hmm. um and then after four hours they just put you in a k-max and it's um <laughs> it feels every, every bit of, like your first solo you know <laughs> so I'll say that is the Husky is like, it's rough. And so when you get in the K-Max, it's, it's such a pleasure. Were you scared? Were you nervous when you went solo on your first time on the K-Max? Gosh, I mean, sure. You know, you just, you just hope you don't roll the thing or like, you know, yeah. mess something up or it's always, it's anytime you get in checked out in a new aircraft and you have to solo, you're like, what did I forget? You know, uh, I guess, you know, yeah, gauges are good. Lights are out. Let's go. I hear that. So I always found it really fascinating that they use a helicopter with wooden blades to fight fire. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I know. Uh, Do the blades that's have why a... Gotta, that's why we got to protect the forest. That's why we got to keep those forests around. Yeah, there you go. I got to keep making K-Max blades. <laughs> yeah. Save the forest, build K-Max. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, let's start from the beginning. Where are you from? Where did you grow sure. up? How did you get into aviation? And yeah, let's hear it. Sure. Um, so I'm from a small town outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Lancaster. Close. Yeah. It's a town called Westchester. Oh. So yeah, about halfway between Philadelphia and Lancaster. All right. Yeah. After, you know, after high school, I went to school in New York City. You know, I always loved aviation, but I think that I just thought that, you know, growing up in Pennsylvania, the only helicopters I saw were the EMS helicopters or military. And and both of those just didn't really intrigue me. Um, and as far as the airplane side of things, it was kind of the same thing was military or the airlines. And so, um, you know, as it goes, life just points you in a certain direction. You kind of just follow it. So um, as I mentioned, I went to school in New York and after school, I kind of had this this desire to like travel, maybe volunteer, kind of have a little bit of adventure after spending four years kind of studying something and, you know, being in the whole schooling system. So I ended up joining a conservation organization and flew down to Australia and got on board a ship as a deckhand. And I had some kind of, you know, handy skills of welding and carpentry and whatnot and ended up working as a deckhand. And and thought I was going to go on 
maybe stay there for, for five months um, and ended up sticking around for five years. And throughout kind of my um, experience on this ship, I started as a deckhand and I worked in the engine room and kind of worked in all areas of the ship. And about halfway through, uh, we had a helicopter on board. We started with a Hughes 300 and then we had a MD 500. And I kind of started looking back at that helicopter thinking like, how cool would that be? And one of our pilots kind of saw something in me and the way that I operated the boats and kind of, you know, had this conversation with me, talked about, well, you know, why don't I go and learn how to fly? And in the moment, I thought that maybe it was a little bit too late. I think I was like 23 at the time, but I thought oh, I already went to school for something. You know, maybe I'm, maybe it's a little bit too late. And uh, And he kind of told me his story. And I realized that there was still plenty of opportunity to be had. And so throughout the next few years of working on the ship, I'd, I'd take like a month off and I'd rush back to the States and get a rating, come back and get to fly with him and fly off the ship and, you know, get some turbine time, which was pretty surreal. Um, and so I did that for kind of a few years. That's kind of what kicked me off into flying. So the, the organization you worked for were the Sea Shepherds, right? Yeah, yeah. Oceanic Conservation Group. Yeah. So they yeah. Were, were you ever on Whale Wars? <laughs> I'm sure you get that question all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. There's a few seasons where you'll see me in a slightly longer hair, you know, the, the really? dirty sailor. Look. Yeah. You're not messing around. Yeah. I'm yeah. not messing around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, I'm, I ain't going to lie to you. I never watched Whale Wars, but I always saw the promos on the Discovery Channel. You know, and it's it was, okay. It's you know? um, it's reality TV. Yeah, you know, yeah. so it's like a little dramatized, dramatized. But at the same time, you just like kind of can't help but uh, watch some. Yeah, it's good when you're like in hotels, like you watch Deadliest Catch or Ice Truck. You know, yeah, yeah, Ice, ice truckers. truckers or anything. Have you seen or did yeah. did you work with that one cap? The one captain, everyone. What was his name? Yeah, yeah. was he uh, Paul Watson? Yeah, how was he in person? Um, you know, he also, he's within kind of the conservation movement. Um, he was a pioneer and still is. Um, and he's just got years of experience and stories. Um, he's one of the smartest guys that I've ever met. I mean, you would, you would never challenge him to trivial pursuit or any (laughs) game of knowledge. Um, so yeah, it was it's it's one of those things. Uh, it was always cool being around him and you know um, playing poker, hearing stories. Um, yeah, yeah, I know guy. it's always unfortunate when people get portrayed a certain way on reality TV, and I'm like, I wonder what that guy's actually like in real in like you know in real yeah. life to sit down yeah. and chat with him. I just remember, I mean. South Park just laid into him on that one episode yeah. about him oh, th- yeah. thinking that he got shot. What did you think of that episode? <laughs> I'm just curious as, uh, as someone who was on the crew. <laughs> you, you gotta, you know, you gotta appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I will say South Park did an amazing job of just roasting them. Super. <laughs> that was a super roast. <laughs> I never, I've seen that episode of South Park, but I, I never yeah. seen the real world wars. And that was pretty funny. That was the only episode of South Park I think I've ever seen. 
You're missing out. I know. Yeah. I yeah. When uh, you were on the show, were you flying for them at that point, or were you uh, still working as a boatswain? Um, so I started, I think, uh, as I mentioned, the first two years I was driving the boats and kind of working on deck. Right, yeah. And then um, the last two years that I was on there, and they did, I think they did document one of the seasons where I started to transition into the helicopter. Nice. Um, you know, whenever you have the opportunity to fly, you're always trying to sell yourself on on why, you know, you should get into that seat. And so on board, we only had one pilot. And there was days that we would fly, you know, maybe eight hours a day. It's tiring. The sun never goes down in, in Antarctica. Um, and so, you know, it was kind of good that I had this experience years on board. I had a helicopter pilot's rating, so I could kind of share some of that workload. And most of the pilots that we that worked for us were very kind of encouraging and supporting of that. So it was a great opportunity for me to, to get in and get some time. Oh, that's great. How often would you fly? Um, it, it depends on, you know, with the organization, we had different campaigns. So when we were in Antarctica, we were primarily trying to search for illegal fishing or illegal whaling vessels. And so we would fly pretty often because, you know, the Southern Ocean is massive. And this is um, one of the, the reasons that there's no other tool like a helicopter. Um, Diane, as you know, a ship's radar maybe sees 15 miles, you know, 16 miles. Um, so if we were searching for vessels, it was only, you can only see to the horizon. Mm-hmm. Um, so once we got the helicopter up, we would do search patterns of, you know, big triangles of 80 miles, 80 miles, 80 miles. Um, so if we were searching for vessels or we felt that we were near, you know, we may fly, you know, four, six, eight hours a day, um, cumulative over a season, probably not that much, maybe a hundred hours a season. So for the summer, I call it a season. Um, so not a great deal, but. When you were, um, doing the mission with the helicopters, how would you use your helicopter in deterring like illegal fishing? Would you guys do like low passes or, mm-hmm. or what, what exactly would you, how would you use the helicopter? So the, the reason that we use the helicopter with the conservation organization, there's a, there are a few main reasons. One is searching for vessels. Mm-hmm. Um, as you mentioned, radar has a very short range. Um, even 15 miles is pretty short. So um, we'd use it as a search tool. We'd use it as a documenting tool. And then, um, you know, sometimes to get a closer look at type of activity was going on, if it was illegal, if they were documented vessels, um, yeah, it just, it allows you to see a lot closer than, yeah. you know, a ship up, up alongside, it, it might be a little bit more reckless. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah I had a different mindset. Surveillance, Jose. Yeah, We're I talking thought, surveillance. Yeah, We're I, not talking I was, attack. I was, thinking, <laughs> I was thinking something else. Chat, uh, chat's what? out there with the, the like, MD500. I, I thought you were like doing passes and stuff. No, he was throwing the stink bombs on the, yeah. on the illegal. My bad, my bad. I had a different idea in my yeah. mind. No, and that's, and, and that's something that um, with the aviation side of things, it is still FAA regulated. You know, it's, it's a North America registered aircraft. Um, and as you guys know, like the, the FAA rules, like you kind of can't mess around. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. So when it came to the helicopter, it was like pure professional business. 
Um, we never, we really never used the helicopter as an antagonizing. Yeah, you weren't hot dogging it. Not that you yeah. can mention yeah. on this podcast. I know, right? At least. Wink, wink. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Now, um, my other question is: Now, this one might be a little silly, but um, with the moving target on the vessel, and you're going, as you said, you were, you know, searching outside the radius, outside the radar capabilities of the vessel that you would land at. Would there yeah. be like a? I would imagine it's just a GPS signal to get back to it, or would you be using? Yeah. We would use um, we would use GPS. Obviously, um, we would have a number of radios on board, but there was times that we would want to be kind of radio silent, mm-hmm. um, and so we would use sat phones, and we would use either we'd link it into the aircraft's audio, and we'd make a direct sat call mm-hmm. to get a lat long, um, and we'd always measure like the trajectory of the ship. So if the ship was heading south, we'd kind of measure out like where are you going to be in one hour. Yeah. And then we would fly a course so that we could get back to that point within an hour. Dang. Um, and, and, you know, most of the time it was always there. Um, most of the time. <laughs> there's a few times that, you know, weather comes in or yeah. there's squall lines and you, and you can't see what's right on the other side. Um, and you got to just push through. So, yeah. Know. I was, yeah, I was curious about the weather down there in Antarctica did it get, was it so cold that you didn't have to worry about icing or was it just cold enough that you really had to worry about it? Um, it's, it's probably just cold enough because the season we would go down would be the Antarctic summer. So Antarctica is for sure cold, mm-hmm. but on an average day in the summer, the weather is actually pretty good. Um, you know, it's pretty dry, pretty clear skies. There's, there's really not much precipitation. So, um, now again, to go back to kind of the purpose of searching, if the weather, the visibility was so poor that we couldn't see 15, 30 miles, there's really no point in flying. Mm -hmm. So anytime the weather was bad, flying was out of the question anyways. So you never really put yourself um, in any bad scenarios. Were you your own meteorologist on the ship making those calls or did he actually have a meteorologist on the call? Yeah. Yep. It's a lot of just look out the window. Um, You know, you can get some, you know, some weather charts, but for the most part, it's, it's look out the window and and dodge, dodge the squall. That's crazy. Look at the finger, put it up in the air. A little old old Kentucky windage on the way back to the ship. I remember when uh, when I was an instructor out here and uh, I asked my student, hey, man, did you check the weather? And he looked at me and he looks outside the window. He goes, I think it's good. <laughs> I was like, get to the computer, you fool. <laughs> yeah, it was it was pretty funny. I was like, no, that is not how we check the weather. <laughs> but yeah, if you have no other choice, no other options. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, I definitely, uh, I think most SoCal pilots are kind of guilty of that when you when you say, "Well, I I drove into work, I saw it, I saw it." Yeah. That's my pirate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> looks clear. It looks pretty good. <laughs> yeah, man. So when you are when you're flying down there in Antarctic waters, did you ever get to go and land on shore and hang out with the scientists down there? We did. Yeah. A few times we were in an area where there was a base. I think there's like 
15 or 17 bases down there, but we would run into a few. Um, the French, Australian, and the American, um, a few times just we were anchored just offshore off an ice shelf and somebody calls us on the radio and, and basically says, what are you, what are you guys doing? You want to come ashore for coffee tomorrow? Which I was like blown away, you know, we're looking at this research hut that's on the shore that was built in 1912 by Douglas Mawson. And then, you know, we're going to kind of go ashore. So there was a little bit of playing involved. Um, and, and yeah, that, we would take the helicopter up on icebergs occasionally. Um, yeah. Iceberg straight ahead. Did you ever have bear paws on your helicopter when you land on the, uh, on that one? We didn't No, I don't, I mean, I think mm. that for, we probably should have, but, <laughs> um, I think we just intended to land on solid ground or back on the ship. Yeah. 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 Yeah, like all the way down and you're sliding. <laughs> just pick it back up, pick it back up. <laughs> well, we did, As we you're having your coffee notes. and your MD500s just sliding away oh, into float. the sunset. Right. <laughs> yeah. They kind of have those like extra long rear yeah. skid. So kind of like a lot balls. of surface area. So how many hours did you have when you first started working there? Because you just you kept going back and forth and getting your ratings. and. Um, I... I got my private in 43 hours. And so my 44th hour was in an MD 500. Get the hell out of here. What? Wow. Did you find that challenging, you know, going straight into a turbine aircraft? Oh my God. I mean, you know, if we just talk about ship landings for a second. Oh yeah. Let's see that. A a 200 foot patrol ship. It was built for the Scottish fisheries. And then we bought it and we kind of modified it and put this helicopter deck on the back um and so you know landing on a small vessel that's pitching and rolling in the sea and the pad is so close we had a retractable hanger which blocks the horizon and so what you know you're learning to keep the attitude of the aircraft nice and stable while ignoring the movement of the ship and the item you know this platform that you're trying to land on while timing the swell so it definitely took a while and, and you know, for, for the first handful of hours, it's completely said, I'm, you got it. I'm, you got the landing. Yeah. Let me just watch, you know? Um, so it's, it was kind of a steep learning curve, but at the same time, anybody that's flown over water, that's about the least challenging type of flying there is. I mean, you're just following, you know, the pink line on the GPS so it was kind of balanced between this like very simple, oh, it, it, with my 45 hours, I was amazing at following that pink line. <laughs> to taking off and landing on the ship, it was like a huge learning curve. Yeah, I bet. Have you ever landed on a ship? No, you've never landed on a ship. No. Yeah, me neither. I landed on decks, like uh, river decks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And um, I landed on glaciers. Oh, yeah, that's true. You did a stint in Alaska. Yeah. Very nice, yeah. (laughs) It's It's almost uh, like an iceberg. Yeah, it's a big iceberg. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know ice fields? Pretty big iceberg. (laughs) (laughs) It's the same thing, yeah. Landing on a ship at 45 hours, that's pretty intense, man. That's impressive, though. You made it happen. You made it work. I'm actually jealous. So you got to fly an MD-500 at 45 hours. I still haven't been able to. Peanut and butter jealous. I haven't been able to fly an MD yet either. And, yeah, that looks like a fun 
fun little thing to it looks fly. like a 22 but like on super steroids yeah totally yeah you know? they're about they're almost like as short as a 22 they're short little helicopters oh yeah, yeah. they can hug up against the yeah, but they look so nimble you know like they're just like yeah, pop, pop, yeah. Pop. have you ever seen that movie what was the movie called where the guy san t- andreas no he picks up the md500 inside the hangar Oh yeah! Uh, a dangerous game. So if you ever, it's on YouTube. Look up a dangerous game, and this guy picks up the helicopter inside the hangar. It's an MD five hundred, and he he hover taxis out, and he plays soccer with the skid with kids that are like hanging out around the hangar. I think they were in Mexico or something, and then uh, Arizona. The entire, the entire, uh, the entire film, the entire film was just MD five hundred stunts. And it was like this wow. big chase of like bad guys. And yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. How have I not seen this? Man. Wow. I know when I first saw it, I was like, how have I, every aviation movie that I've ever watched. I think he hot started in that movie when like, <laughs> because it shows all the gauges and it's like, I'm like, maybe he has uh, a couple seconds in the transient, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know the MD. <laughs> I'm just sitting there like one one thousand, two one thousand. Okay, he's good. <laughs> I think he's good. He's good. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> oh man, yeah. So today, you know, I've been I've been on this documentary binge. I'm supposed to be meeting this big producer soon, like next week. So I've been trying to watch all of his all of his movies uh, before I meet him, so I have stuff to talk about with him. And I was. <laughs> I'm like scrolling through his documentaries this morning and I, I saw this one called Alive. And have you ever seen it about the uh, rugby team the that film? goes down? Yeah, the film. A, well, I guess it is a documentary. Yeah, it's yes, technically it's a, a doc. Yeah. It's kind of hard to say. Of course, they're not going to have any footage up there in the in the, in the yeah. Andes. They had to remake it. Yeah, the film, the rugby team. The rugby team. Yeah. <laughs> but Classic. Yeah, it's super, super classic. Yeah, so... Her first time watching it. It was my first time watching it. I didn't know what it was. And I was like, oh, this guy's he's interested in aviation. So that that's good. And I'm like, ooh, airplane. So then I clicked on it and started watching it. And of course, in the first 10 minutes, this plane's going down. And I am like clenching my teeth. <laughs> like, oh my God, this is so horrible. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. This is just on the topic of watching aviation movies, but yeah, I was like, I I, what, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't really like look at what it was about. I just sort of played it, and it was oh my gosh, that was a that, that was, was an intense intense movie. Yeah, that whole yeah that that might be a tough one to bridge general aviation into. I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey kids. <laughs> hey kids. No. You keep like, following your dreams. You go like fly. airplanes? Go go watch this movie alive. <laughs> Remember to sit in the tail. You got the highest uh you know, rate. <laughs> oh my god. Oh no. <laughs> oh shit. It's not too yeah. soon to joke about this, right? No, that was a horrible, horrible that was, thing that, that happened. Was, that was bad. <sighs> okay. Um, well, let's continue with, with your story. <laughs> I, I continually almost kill Jose sometimes. <laughs> he laughs himself to death. <laughs> oh, God. Good. You good? Yeah. We're solid? Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't have to get the defibrillator. <laughs> Not this time. We get you. Sorry. Uh, she's uh Claire. Lately, lately, man, lately this chick has been coming out with some gems. Yeah. yeah. 
Is, is that how you built all of your flight time or what was your next step in your aviation career? Because you obviously continued on, on this path and yeah. left the Sea Shepherds at some point. Um, so the, the whole ship experience was really beneficial, you know, for, the, for all five years. But, you know, the downside was, is that we just really didn't fly that much, um, nor was I really challenged Mm-hmm. that much um you know as i mentioned the most exciting part was like getting on and off the ship and then um it was a little bit kind of mundane so i really wanted to just expand my career and the, one of the pilots that we had on board i remember him um you know showing me pictures of Hueys and 212s and fighting fire and he's you know kind of showing me the, the adventures of the utility pilot and it just seemed so attractive so uh, i left the ship with the intentions of kind of building just building more flight time because you know when i left i only had a couple hundred hours which as we know is really not much to go anywhere with and you know from the start he really encouraged me to go the flight instructor route just said hey if you want time if you want to you know get time fast and be an instructor, do a year of instructing and you'll probably have a thousand hours and you can pick and choose what you want to do. So I went back to California, did my CFI, did my double I and ended up getting hired at the school that I trained at. Um, what was the name of the school? Then knowing that I had, say again? That was the name of the school? The flight school you went to? The, the, yeah, yeah. The company in, in Southern California is Helistream. And this kind of ironic because um, the original pilot on Sea Shepherd worked for Helistream. So that was kind of how I knew of Helistream. And so I I started instructing there. And meanwhile, you know, I was trying to shove my foot into the utility and longline world. So I was trying to go on whatever flights I could, building more turbine time, getting a different aircraft. Um, yeah. So like most people's story did instructing for a couple years, transitioned up to some turbines, got into some power line patrol, um, you know, flew the A-star, flew the 500, um, H145, and then got into the Hueys, um, the Bell 205 and the Bell 212. Nice. And those kind of from the start, I can I can remember sitting on the ship looking at pictures of Bell two twelves fighting fire, and that just seemed like the coolest thing. So um the amazing thing about working for Helistream was that they did everything. They did flight training, they did photo, video, tours, power line, fire, pretty much everything except EMS and news. So there was a lot of diversity and I got tons of experience there and they really just helped me fast track my career right to where I, I, you know, I really wanted to get to. So nice. With a good old Rod, Rod Mr. Anderson, Mr. Anderson, yeah. Mr. Rod Mr. Anderson. Anderson. Yep. Yep. Is he as, is he as, is he as tough as everyone says he is? Uh, on, on check rides. He's really one of the, just one of the nicest guys and, and such a pleasure to fly with. So, you know, he's, oh, he's, sure. uh, he's an amazing guy. Yeah. I heard he's just super knowledgeable and his check rides are really hard, but yeah, but oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I've only heard good things, but just that he's pretty tough yeah. on check yep. rides and such. Puts you know, you through he, the he's, ringer. One of, he's one of the most humble guys, but um, slowly 
as you get to know him, you realize his place in aviation and the history with the Robinson aircraft and, and helping write SFARs and setting a world record for the hover record in a Bell 47. And yeah, I mean, it's, he, he's got, he's got a lot of experience and a lot of stories. Wait, what was that world record? I've never heard of it. Like, what did he so do? if you look it up, it took place in Anaheim stadium. Um, in a, in an old Bell 47, an old wheeled version, uh, uh, model. And they did a hover for 50 hours. And, and I, I won't say how many minutes, but, and they took places and they taped eggs to the bottoms of the wheels to prove, Hey, this thing has never touched the ground. And they Whoa. stayed there in Anaheim stadium and they, they hovered for 50 hours to, Set the new Guinness Book of World Records. 50 hours. Was, uh, so they were just hot fueling while they were hovering? Hot fueling. I think they had a stack of uh, of like pallets and what? they would use that to climb in and out of the aircraft while one person was hovering. And then they'd kind of grab control, move over to the other side, let them out, take their break. No um, way. What the heck? I bet Disneyland was pissed. <laughs> <laughs> Who's that aircraft in our TFR? Who's in our TFR? for two days. Bastard. Oh my that that's ins- how have I never heard of that happening? That's yeah. really cool. I that's mean crazy. that's that's crazy, but that's cool. How many pilots did they use altogether? Was it just two guys switching back and forth? Or- I, I think there was three pilots. Um uh, you know, if you, if you ever go into Helistream, there's pictures on the wall. There's, um, you know, there's the Guinness book of world Records certificate that's on the wall. Um, and now that aircraft, that bell 47 is in the Smithsonian at, uh, Washington, DC. Oh, how cool. That's nutty. What yeah. a cool claim to fame. Yeah. I get tired yeah. of hovering them five hours over a fire, let alone 50. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, right? get this. Yeah. I oh, mean, all these people wanting to set world records. Jen, this guy, <laughs> Ron. I know. I got to start thinking of my own. I know. Now I want to set a world record. I'm going to beat Gronkowski's record. The one with the football yeah. drop, you know, was like, I think 500 feet, you know, in the helicopter, he throws a football. Yeah. This guy's going to beat it. Yeah. That's going to be your claim to fame. I'm going to do 550. Oh, <laughs> wild fly. Wild fly. Wild fly. Get your heart out, Tom Brady. <laughs> I'm going to call him up right now. So I used to work on a yacht right after the Coast Guard. And uh, it was it was the owner of the New Orleans Saints private yacht, Mr. Benson. I didn't know anything about football. Sorry, this is a little off topic. I just, just reminded me when you said Tom Brady. I was like, oh, yeah, that dude. But, I mean, obviously Tom Brady doesn't play for <laughs> New Orleans. But, that dude. Um, so, yeah, there was a one time. I, you know, and, again, I know nothing about football. Someone was like... Oh, you're from Atlanta. Are you a Falcons fan? I'm like, I'm not a big fan of basketball. They're like, never mind. <laughs> never mind. <laughs> and, um, oh, gosh, what's his name? The quarterback of Drew Brees. Oh, Drew Brees. So Drew Brees calls up the boat to talk to Mr. Benson. And this was back when the, the whole NFL lockdown thing was happening, when they wanted all the owners to open their books and they were all refusing. 2011? Yep. That was back then. Yes, it was. 2011. So I pick up the phone and he's like, hi, this is Drew Brees. Can I talk to Mr. Benson? I'm like, sure, no problem. You know, 
like, can you please hold? And one of the girls on my boat's like, who was that? I'm like, I don't know, some guy named Breezy. (laughs) (laughs) And she was like, Drew, Breeze is on the phone. I was like, yeah, why? Who is that? She was like, girl, you need to do some research. So I had no idea. And uh, yeah, I looked him up. I'm like, oh, yeah, this dude's a pretty big deal. Yeah, some guy named Breezy. <laughs> oh man! All right, back to back to aviation. So now you work for you left HeliStream, and then what was your next move? Uh, after HeliStream, I uh, I took a position to get into the KMAX right, with right. a company Rotac that's based in Anchorage, Alaska, and that was kind of the motivation was getting into a new aircraft. I think most people look at the KMAX and and would love to fly it. I mean, you know, the, the transition for maybe most people is like you get up into like a, a, a dual pilot aircraft, like a Blackhawk or a S61 or something like that. Um, the K-Max just has this appeal of being able to lift a lot. It's a very unique aircraft and it's just one seat. And with that, it's just kind of a, a change of pace, getting to, getting to do new stuff, learning new aircraft, flying new areas. All right. Changing it up. I like it. And what's your schedule like? With Rotac, I work at 12-12 when we're on fire or a 14-14 if we're doing a power line or other lifting, logging or other types of jobs. Nice. Kind of talking about the K-Max, it is kind of a, it is kind of a weird helicopter. It does some different things. And a lot of K-Max pilots will kind of tell you that they've had some scary moments. So maybe I've got that lined up down the road. I don't no, know. Nah, we're not going to. No, put that juju we're not going to. We're not going to yeah. put that out there. Um, but I am curious how it auto rotates. The K Max auto rotates uh, kind of like a dream. Um, it it descends at like nine hundred feet per minute, eight hundred feet per minute. Wow. Uh, the one weird thing is that um, in normal flight or power on, you're flying at a hundred to one hundred four. Um, and when it auto rotates, depending on the density altitude, it goes down to like between 75 and 80. Wow. So you watch that needle go, go down really low and you're, you know, you do sit there and go, I hope it stops moving. I hope it stops moving. And then it stabilizes at 82 or 80, depending on, on what you're at. If it's really cold, the rotor really wants to droop. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's slow. It just cruises. You you got all the time to think. Wow, that's, that's pretty nice. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Do you know the actual measurement of clearance in between those blades? Like when they're starting up? In between them? Yeah. Like when they're well, crossing over. So, yeah, so the so the intermeshing, they're always ninety degrees off. Um and the blades pass probably so a blade will pass over a hub. And it's probably, maybe it's only like a foot and a half. Um, but because of the way, you know, in forward flight, the flapping, the blades want to actually go further apart. Okay. So there is a way to make them touch, but you got to really like be try. really rough on the controls. Mm-hmm. You got to really try. And, and you'll have what's called a blade-to-hub strike, where a blade will kind of bump off of the other hub. And obviously, that's a really bad thing. It's really mm-hmm. rare. As I mentioned, you got to really, like... Um, Try to make it happen. Yeah. Oh, man. 
Crazy. Yeah, I wouldn't want that to happen. <laughs> Blade strike on the yeah. hub. No thanks. Noted. <laughs> Noted. So next time you're flying at KMAX, just slow uh, is smooth. Yeah, just That's it. Yeah. take it it's easy, like man. Take it easy. Mm-hmm. Slow is smooth. Do you still do any conservation work in your off time? It's kind of tough. One of the reasons that I wanted to switch companies was to be able to have more time off. Um, when you work for a company that's 10 minutes away, usually you get called in. So I was just working a lot more than I felt that I needed to. So right now, kind of that's my hopes is that working a schedule with more off time, then I can kind of do some more volunteer work or more conservation work. Some people say that you can't be a conservationist and be a pilot at the same time with how we burn fuel and how it can be detrimental to polluting the environment. And what would you say to that kind of thought process as a conservationist? I think on, you know, your initial impression of helicopters is that they're not very environmentally friendly or whatever, you know, they burn jet fuel, yada, yada, yada. They burn a lot of jet fuel sometimes, but the things that we do with helicopters, there's no other tool. And sometimes we have to use helicopters to kind of help whether we're protecting the environment, using them for conservation. At some point, maybe electric helicopters, but it's not going to happen anytime soon. So if we have to use helicopters to protect the forest, or if we have to use helicopters to protect the ocean, um, we just don't have a better tool. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's kind of a, a tough thing. When, when we start to talk about environmentalism, um, and, and protecting the environment or preserving what we have left. We obviously have certain needs that need to be met. We all we need fuel, whether it's petroleum-based. We need paper products, so we need wood. We're building houses. So how do we get those resources? For example, logging. If you bring up logging to any environmentalist, they usually will cringe because this idea of clear-cut you know, forestry comes into mind. And that really is, it's really unattractive. Clear cutting, you know, you're wiping out a whole hillside, you're destroying a habitat, um, and you're also depleting, you know, the future generations for those trees to be able to kind of drop seeds and, and continue the next generation of trees. But with things like helicopter logging, that's the most gentle way that we can extract timber or wood products and by doing just small selective logging. So that's pretty much the reason that the K-Max was built. You know, the, the K-Max was built as this work truck and it was kind of designed with things like logging in mind. So if we can do this selective logging where we don't need to cut a road into a mountain and we can just drop a long line in, pluck a group of doubt and leave nothing behind, but, a, you know, maybe a stump and a, you know, not much left. Mm -hmm. Um, That's really the best thing that we can do. Environmentalism, in a way, gives aviation a job. A lot of these protections that are put in place is almost like job security. If we think about power line patrol, you got two choices. We need power. Nobody's going to argue it. Okay. So do you want the local forest to just have roads cut through it, big roads just cut up through our national forest and our national parks? Or you can use helicopters to place people in there without roads, to build these structures, to build power lines. Um, And again, you don't leave anything behind. Mm -hmm. So as long as we have those environmental 
protections in place, it almost is, is giving aviation job security, patrolling them, maintaining them, building them. The yep. other aspect of it is even using it in the forestry service or in like the game wardens where you're tagging, conserving animals or going to the hatcheries and replenishing the fishes and stuff like that. You know, like there's a lot of different jobs that helicopters do that a lot of people don't understand they that they do mm-hmm. or the tools that they use yeah. before. Uh, EMS yeah. is like, even though it's not con- uh, conservation, but like even in the EMS world, when you're rescuing somebody stuck in the mountains, a helicopter is the only way out. So it's the fastest and most effective tool. Like in alive, they got rescued <laughs> by two Hueys. <laughs> Full circle. <laughs> Full circle. <laughs> Besides that, you did mention a couple of other things like tourism. Like how is tourism yep. affecting conservation? And one of the points that you've made to me before was that it's giving people visibility of these national parks and beautiful areas that it makes people feel more connected to those places and want to help preserve them and conserve them. So that was also a really good point that you've made. I would say you get more bang for your buck with helicopters and conservation than you do damaging the environment. I think it probably yeah. outweighs the good, good outweighs the bad. I don't know if bang for your buck was the right terminology. <laughs> that was the right phrase to use there, but yes. yeah, definitely. Somebody's got to pay and everything, you know, everything costs something. Um, oh, really? And so, you know, if we think about some of the things that, and I'll just say from personal experience or from the companies that I've worked for, if there weren't environmental protections in place, or if there wasn't wildlife sensitive areas, we wouldn't have flown a helicopter there. Mm-hmm. There would just be a road already in place and they would have graded it, brought some bulldozers in and just built the structures. Um, you know, with, with forestry or firefighting, um, you know, for years I did initial attack or heli attack where our job is, you know, I have a crew of eight firefighters on board and that helicopter is the fastest way to get to that fire while it's still tiny. Mm-hmm. And if you can catch that fire while it's, you know, just an acre and you've got a good chance of stopping it. And Southern California, we're no strangers to fire. Once it gets beyond a certain size, you know, one, two, five, ten helicopters, it's just not going to do anything. It's a tool that I I don't want to say I would love to see it replaced because I'd be out of a job, but that's just my confidence in knowing that a vertical takeoff and landing aircraft like a helicopter, it's got jobs for years. Yeah, I definitely we you know, I don't know if you listened to our podcast with Stacy Sheard, but yeah, she we really got into detail about where you know she believes EV toll is going and I I think she thinks it's closer closer than we think. Even just going to Heli Expo and seeing all the different designs that people are coming up with or prototypes and I I think it's right around the corner. I don't think it's that far away. It's definitely going to be within our lifetime. I don't know about within I'd say our, within 10 to 20 years. 10 to, Yeah, I would say 20 a good solid 20 years from now. A lot of things like logging and and uh, fire. Oh, by then we'll have jetpack jet suits. That's right. You know? I think that we'll see it a little bit sooner. Ironically, again, there's no tool like a helicopter. I worked, I did some uh, work lifting a electric 
VTOL aircraft and repositioning it, lifting it with a long line under a Huey and repositioning it to a place where it could expand its uh, forward flight testing. The company Joby Aviation, and they've made a fully electric vertical takeoff and landing six propeller aircraft that when I saw it, I've, I've done two lifts for it. And I did it, I think, four years ago. And the first time I thought, this is nuts. This isn't, this isn't happening. And then I just did another one last year and I was blown away. I mean, to, if you look it up, there's videos of it. It's so quiet. It can fly for an hour and a half. It cruises fast and it's here and it's fully autonomous. It's, it's unmanned. What was the company's so videos name? videos of it. Joby. J-O-B-Y. J-O-B-Y. Joby. Hear that, ladies and gentlemen, Joby. They're here to, to stay. They go public by the stock now. <laughs> <laughs> and they've received so much funding from companies like Toyota. And so it, it's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we're a, a long way away from electric airliners. Yeah, but, totally. But we're, we're getting there. Yeah. If one day they've got an aircraft that can fly a 700 gallon Bambi bucket on fire, I'll fly it. Hey. Sounds, <laughs> sounds great. Do you have a family? I got a, a fiance and a baby girl that's coming in October. Oh, congratulations. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Congratulations. Thank that's so exciting. I'm very excited. So, and that's I also kind of, you know, one of the beauties of the schedule, um, yes, I'm away for 12 days, but that also means that I'm at home 12 days. And so people usually kind of are asking like, well, isn't it tough? You know, but to me, um, that's like, that's 12 mornings, afternoons, evenings that I'll get to spend with my family versus if I worked a, um, Monday through Friday, nine to five, you know, LA traffic, get home late. Um, I feel like I'll have more quality time to spend with them. Yeah, that's good to hear because you hear so many times with utility, maybe in your earlier years in utility when you had to be away maybe longer and didn't have that 12 and 12 schedule, maybe a 12 and 2 during fire season, which is a really common schedule that, uh, what do they call it, AIDS, aviation-induced divorce syndrome. (laughs) Yeah. But like it's a real thing, you know, and you're away from home. It's hard to maintain a family life, but it sounds like, I mean, I, I would agree with you. I, 12 and 12 is a nice, nice That's schedule. a nice schedule. Yeah, that's a really nice schedule. Yeah. It's like long enough you can go yeah. and do some cool stuff and or be at home with your family and long enough that you get to miss them at the same time. <laughs> On the 12th day, is that a travel day back? Or is it the 13th day? Is that a travel day? Yeah, yeah I've, been, I've been very lucky that my schedules or, or my contracts have been relatively close to home. Mm-hmm. So that 12th day, I'm home that night. Oh, sweet. Um, and, and, and I'm usually close enough that, you know, my fiance would just come up and hang out for a few days and then go back. So I've definitely um, had it pretty, pretty nice. So, yeah, man. Well-deserved. Yeah. yeah it's, it is tough, you know, in the industry, it's, I think that everybody has a period where they need to cut their teeth and sacrifice and, um, work a ridiculous schedule for probably not much money, but that's kind of, unfortunately that's kind of the name of the game. So if you have a partner who's supportive, keep them close. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And let them know how much you appreciate that support because you know, it's, 
it's uh, not everybody's down for that. Yeah. True story. Yeah. So, you know, I, I go back to when I started before I learned to fly and I had these mentors or I had these older guys that were kind of pushing me in the direction of aviation and helicopters and the things that they gave me, um, you know, whether it's flying tips or just support, um, it's, it's really priceless. And so the one thing I love about aviation is that there's always, you know, at some point along your career, somebody helped you out. Maybe somebody took you a, you know, a ride along or somebody put a word in for you to get a job, um, told you to come out and fly their plane or their helicopter with you. Um, and that's something I'm always trying to pay forward. You know, a lot of times I'll have an empty seat next to me. And so I always try and grab somebody, you know, that could really benefit from that experience, even just mm -hmm. sitting and watching what other people do. You know, we, we learn through people with more experiences. So, um, you know, being a mentor, I feel like I'm, you know, I haven't been flying that long and I'm not that old to maybe be a mentor, but I'm always trying to pass that forward and, and help people however I can. Yeah, for sure. I always felt like I never understood when you get pilots and there's a few out there that have their egos really high, you know, and like look down on like guys with lower time or try not to help. And they're just dicks. Yeah. And it's just like, why? You know, like I, I never yeah, understood that. We, we all were there at some point, you know, mm -hmm. we all were a fresh CFI with 200 hours or we were a fresh, you know, commercial pilot with a thousand hours. And we're just, you know, um, trying to cut our teeth in the game. Yeah. We're just wide eyed, like looking around, like trying to imagine ourselves in their shoes. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you get some grumps. I hope to never come off like that. I hope to never have an ego with it. And yeah, I'll, I'll sit and chat about helicopters and tell you what, what I did and what I think that you should do. And, you know, along those lines, it's never too late. So it's, that's one of my favorite things with aviation is that people get into flying when sometimes when they're 15 and that's so cool. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes <laughs> when they're 40, yeah. that might be even cooler. I get a lot of people um, on my Instagram asking me if it's too late to get into aviation. I'm like, it's not too late, but if you want a 20 year career in the airlines, maybe a little too late, but it's definitely not too late to start flying. Yeah. Well, great. That's wonderful. And Chad's phone number for all you people out there. <laughs> oh. Put you on blast. I know. <laughs> if you guys want to get into utility and play K-Max, here you go. <laughs> He's here to help everyone. <laughs> no, but totally paying it forward. We've all been there. And uh, yeah, that's super important. And you know what? Sometimes, not going to lie, you just don't really feel like talking to people or you've had a really long flying day and it's just not your day and um, maybe you do feel a little grumpy and someone approaches you at the wrong time, just tell them, hey man, it's been a really long day. I'd really love to help you out, but let me give you my contact information. I'd love to chat about this another time, you know? And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Chad, for taking the time out of your day to talk to us and share your story. Thanks and again. And my bad for not watching Will War. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is your bad. It's a pretty dope show. Hey, thanks, guys. This was really fun. Bye. Bye. Later. Ground School is in session. 
All right, AV nerds, welcome to your ground school at the end of the episode. Thanks for sticking around. We're going to answer Susan's question. What do you do when you find something wrong on your pre-flight check? And are all of those things you find no-fly issues? Well, first of all, great question. If you have something broken on pre-flight, what in the heck do you do next? Well, we're going to turn to 91.213 of the federal regulations to answer. And the first part of the regulations discusses minimum equipment lists, MELs, and very basically an MEL is an agreement between the FAA and the operator for equipment that may be inoperative on the aircraft as long as they abide by certain instructions and maintenance procedures listed. However, you're not going to find these on training aircraft, so let's just skip ahead a little. 91.213 says a person may take off an aircraft with inoperative instruments and equipment provided a couple things. And there's a lot of legal jargon in these regulations, so we're going to make it real simple. So one, it can't be part of the type certification for that aircraft, meaning the approval of design for that aircraft and all of the components, including things like propellers, your engine, your control stations. You obviously don't want any of those things inoperative before you fly them. Two, if any of the equipment that you find on your pre-flight is indicated as required on the aircraft's equipment list or kinds of operation equipment list for the kind of flight operation being conducted. Number three, if any of those pieces of equipment are required by 91205 or any other rule of this part for the specific kind of flight operation being conducted. Okay, basically 91205 is the part of the FAR that lists all of the Equipment that is required for day VFR, night VFR, and instrument. So if any of the pieces of equipment that you find are on that list, you may not take off. And number four, last but not least, is if it's required by an airworthiness directive. An AD are legally enforceable rules required by the FAA in accordance with 14 CFR Part 39 to correct an unsafe condition in a product. Basically, the FAA came out with required maintenance items for specific make and models of aircraft, and you can find those listed on the FAA website. All right, so in summation... If it is part of a type certification, if it's required by the kinds of operation equipment list, if it's listed in 91205 or required to be operational by an airworthiness directive, you may not take off. Now, if you absolutely need to fly the aircraft to a place where maintenance can be performed, you can request a special flight permit. I know you're all special out there, but you still need to get permission from your local FISDO, your flight standards district office. So what do you do if you find something on the aircraft that's inoperative that's not any of those things? Can you just take the aircraft off and go on your merry way? Well, actually, there's still a couple of things that you need to do before you can take off. One thing that you could do is remove that piece of equipment or instrument, in which case you would need a new weight and balance for that aircraft, or you can deactivate and placard inoperative. Now, how do you deactivate something? Well, Before you start pulling circuit breakers and deactivating things yourself, just consult with your maintenance guys and make sure that it doesn't require further maintenance for you to deactivate it. And if they give you the go-ahead, go ahead and just pull the circuit breaker for that piece of equipment. And you're going to want to give yourself a friendly reminder that that piece of equipment is broken so you don't accidentally use it in flight by throwing on an inoperative sticker on that piece of equipment. I am out of breath, you guys. And that is the end of the lesson. Thank you so much for sticking around. And if you're still here, don't forget to like and subscribe and, you know, hit us up on Instagram. We love to hear it from you. Have a beautiful, beautiful day. Mm